Let's go ahead and get started. We'll have a prayer to kick things off. Father God, we thank you so very much for another day. Father, we thank you for the moisture. Thank you for uh, the scriptures that we can read and study and that we can trust you by faith and, and walk following your son Jesus. Help us, Father, to be faithful apprentices of his, faithful disciples of his. Father, help us to keep our eyes fixed on him, to listen to his voice above all the other noise. Father, to walk by your spirit, that the spirit's fruit might be produced in our life. Father, help us to love one another, love our neighbor as ourself. Help us, Father, even to love our enemies. Father, help us to be the people that you have called us to be. Help us to um, live as if we believe the truth of the gospel, that Jesus has brought this new reality into being. And Father, help us to live that way every day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, as always, for being here or for those that are participating online. Uh, we are so thankful for your presence. Uh, we're going to just jump right in because I have so much material to cover, which means that I will not probably cover all of it. Uh, but I'm going to try my very best. We're going to go fast. Uh, but I'm not going to put up, we're on week, we, we missed a week, I know, but uh, we're on week eight of our lessons. So I'm not going to put up all the, the points that we've been going through until after we say them. Okay, so we're going to see if we can say them without looking. Okay, so first one, what's the first one? Chosen. Okay, so the first point in sort of the story of the Old Testament is chosen. Abraham was chosen. Abraham's seed or descendant was chosen in order to bring the blessings uh, to the, all the nations of the world. Okay, so chosen. What's the next one? Liberated. Say it again. Sorry. Liberated. liberated. Yes, liberated. Liberated from where? Or from what? From Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, right? So the Exodus, they were brought safely out of Egyptian slavery. They were rescued. They were redeemed. They were purchased. God made them his own people, liberated them from slavery. Okay, good. What's the next one? Wandering, wandering right? They, they didn't trust God. They didn't trust him to deliver them into the land. So they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years uh, until that generation passed away. And then... Yes, victorious. So they went into the land. Joshua led them into the land. They began to take possession of the land. God did what God said he would do, gave them the land, gave them possession of the land. So they moved in and they were victorious. Uh, did they take all of the land? Nope, they didn't take all of the land, but God said, don't worry about it. I'll continue to give it to you. You continue to love me and trust me and obey me. Did they do that? No. And so the people became like thorns, right? Chaos, thorns, uh, like like this new Garden of Eden had now become overrun uh, by the thorns, and it wasn't what it, it should have been, what it could have been. Okay, good. So after, after they were victorious, then what did they want? A king, right? And so when they chose a king for themselves to be like all the other nations, they were what? They were ruled, right? Ruled by King Saul, by King Saul. Good. And then after they were ruled by King Saul, then God took the kingdom away from him, gave it to David, and then David united all the people, right? United Israel. And so for a time, the people of Israel were a united people, even into the reign of King Solomon. That's kind of where we'll pick up tonight. But they were united under David and then under his son Solomon. But quickly, they were divided. So they were a divided kingdom, a northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. That'll be our lesson for this evening. So they were divided, and then eventually they were 
exiled off to Assyria and to Babylon, and they were scattered and dispersed all over the world. Finally, a remnant of them came back to um, came back to, to Jerusalem, to Judah. What do we call that period? Returned, right? So they returned, and then it still wasn't what it should have been, what it could have been, and so it was a period of waiting. Good, awesome, man, fantastic, good. Okay, so that's all 11 points that we just went through and that we, we will continue going through for the next few weeks. We are going to, thankfully, extend class until the uh, first week of March so that we can cover all 11 of these points and then after that, we will uh, have a different class in the auditorium. Okay, so let me just ask a few discussion questions. I know we, we've got a lot to get through, but I, I do want to discuss this. Just kind of at this point in the story, if you had to sort of summarize, and hopefully we've been, as we've been going, rethinking how we would summarize the Bible. But again, if you were to start at Genesis and go through it and think about it the way we've sort of been laying out, what would you say the Bible, what, what are some of the big picture themes or what would be your summary so far in the story? Or even, I mean, you can connect it to the end of the story. It's not like we don't know how it's going to end. It, we're okay with spoilers in this class, right? So we know, we know where the story is going. So what would you say, based on the way we've been looking at it, what's the Bible about? Oh, good, yes. God is patient. And isn't that what he reveals himself to be throughout the story of the Old Testament? That he is long-suffering, that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When God describes himself, he describes him that, himself that way, that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So yes, God is patient. What else is the Bible about? I'm sorry? Redemption, absolutely redemption, right? So God, this patient God, continually finds ways to redeem his people. They get themselves in trouble and he buys them back. He rescues them. He purchases their freedom back to himself. He liberates them. He saves them. So it's a story of redemption. What else? What, say that again? Ooh, ah, awesome. Strength through weakness. Absolutely. God didn't pick Israel because they were a mighty nation, right? He picked them because they were small so that his strength could be seen in their weakness. It wasn't because they were mighty. It was because they were chosen. Absolutely. Oh, it's so good. Almost too good to be true, right? This beautiful, wonderful story. I mean, even just the humanity aspect of it, right? That God would partner with humans. Does God need the partnership of humans? Of course not. But he wants the partnership of humans, that his project that is continually unfolding throughout this biblical story, that he's chosen for human beings to be an integral part of that, more so than the hosts of heaven. He chose human beings with whom he was going to partner. Ultimately, that partnership would be seen in the incarnation, right? But yes, all this stuff is almost too good to be true. What else? Yes. I mean, that's God's love for us is all the way through the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Yes, absolutely. God's love. Absolutely. God's love is patient. God's love is almost too good to be true. God's love is, is his strength through our weakness. All of the things, the redemption, all of these things echo back God's love for his people and for humanity and 
the reciprocal love that we're supposed to have for him, right? Love him with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And, and, and I really hope we also are picking up on things like, again, that sometimes get missed. When we summarize scripture, sometimes we forget about some of the main storylines like Abraham, like the promise that God made to Abraham, like specific promises. We could say on the one hand, God is a God who keeps his promises. That's true, but we live in a very individualistic culture that thinks about God's promises for me, God's promises to Wes, but that's not really what the Bible's about. It's about God's promises to Abraham. Now, does that have application to Wes? You better believe that it does because through Abraham came Jesus and through Jesus comes these blessings to all the nations of mankind, including ours, including me. And so we get to be a part of this story. So I hope that we just kind of keep in mind those big picture ideas that, that the Bible isn't some of the ways we tend to think about it are things like a self-help book. It's not that, is it? Like if you went to the Bible and you thought, this is a great self-help book, just read the Bible, you'll know how to live your life, right? Again, I've heard the silly acronym, basic instructions before leaving earth. Number one, it's not really about leaving earth. Number two, it's not basic. Number three, it, so much of it's not really instructive. Like It's not just instructions. If you thought that's what the Bible was and you sat down with it, can you imagine how misleading that is to somebody to say, hey, just read this, this book and you'll know how to live your life. And they're this far in and they're like, I don't know, it's a lot of stories about wars and people killing each other and slaves. And like, I don't know, what does this have to do with basic instructions, right? How is this instructions for my life? Now, is it instructive? Yes, because it shapes, it shapes the thinking that we have about who is God? Who am I? What is this story and how do I fit into this story? But it's a narrative instruction. It's not a checklist. That's tend to be how we think about the Bible because we tend to read the Bible an isolated verse at a time rather than this way where we're looking at the big picture narrative of the story. Before we get to the divided part of the story, I want us to go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is so rich. Like if that, if, if somebody only had the opportunity to read a, a handful of books and you know my, my love for reading whole books of the Bible, that would be one that I encourage people to read. Read Deuteronomy. Like if you want to know, and remember, Deuteronomy means what? Second what? Yes, yeah, second giving of the law, right? Second law. So Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, the, the reminder to the next generation that went into Israel, this is, this is your side of the covenant. These are your covenant obligations. So do this and you'll live in the land the way God wants you to. So here's your side of the agreement. Now, Deuteronomy is so rich. And if you want to know what did God expect of his people, like really specifically, Deuteronomy is a great place to start. But God knew exactly what was going to happen. He kind of, he kind of spoiler alert, he, he told them what they were going to do and how all of that was going to work out. Look at Deuteronomy 17. He says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, this is Moses reminding them of these things, and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers and you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So did Moses know? Did God know that that's what they were going to ask for eventually? Yes. Yes. 
right? Even before all of the period of judges that we went through and how there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, God had already told them, eventually, you're going to want to be like everybody else. You're going to want a king like everybody else. You're going to ask for a king, and I'm going to say, okay, as long as he's one of your brothers, I will choose one from among you, and he will be your king. Now, look at verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. I mean, number one, does that sound like what kings typically do? Right? Yeah, that's what they wanted, right? You're going to want a king so that you can be like everybody else. And your king is going to want to be like all the other kings. That's what kings do, right? They get lots of silver. They get lots of gold. They get a really big army. They get the latest military equipment, chariots. They have lots of horses. And they have lots of wives. Not just because they want to enjoy that part of humanity, but because they're making all of these alliances with all of these other kingdoms and groups. This is what kings do. At that time, this is what kings do. And God says to his people on every imaginable level, you're not like everybody else. You can't be like everybody else. You're going to want a king so that you can be like everybody else. But if your king is like all the other kings, you're going to go the way of every other nation. Your king can't live like every other king. He can't acquire many horses. He can't acquire many wives. He can't have a lot of silver and a lot of gold. Now, when you read this, this is way back in Deuteronomy, right? Way back. They're they're not even in the promised land yet. Who does this sound like? Solomon. From the very beginning. And if if you didn't read Deuteronomy and you just get to Solomon and you're like, oh, cool, Solomon, he's a great king, right? He he asks for wisdom, God grants him wisdom, and then the first thing he does, start accumulating a bunch of silver, a bunch of gold, a bunch of horses, a bunch of wives, right? We often talk about the wives part of it as if that was the only thing that, that he went wrong in. It was also the wealth. It was the silver and the gold and the horses and the chariots. Listen to uh, 1 Kings 10. So this is when Solomon is king. Again, much, much later, verse 27 of 1 Kings, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of Shephelah. Now, when we read those, again, we we just read silver and gold as plentiful. If we read this through a a human lens, we think, oh, that's, that's a good thing, right? God is blessing them. But if we're reading it through the lens of Deuteronomy, we're thinking, oh, warning, 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 red flag, red flag, red flag. Whoa, this is not the way we're supposed to be going. These are not indicators necessarily of God's blessings. This is looking a whole lot more like you are eating forbidden fruit. God said, don't touch that. Trust me, don't touch that. And Solomon's import of horses was from where? Egypt and Q. And the king's traders received from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Again, if you're not reading this through the lens of Deuteronomy, you don't realize God said, don't touch this. God said, 
you do not have to know experientially good and evil. Just trust me. But, but from our childhood, we've all said, no, 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 I want to know for myself, right? Mom says, don't touch the stove, it's hot. We say, but I want to know for myself. God says, don't acquire a lot of silver and gold. Don't, don't, don't think you need all of this military equipment like all of the other nations. Don't, don't acquire a bunch of horses and certainly don't go back to Egypt where I freed you and get all of these things. And we say, well, I want to, I want to experience that. That's what all, that's what everybody else is doing. See how we all, we all do this. So it's not just Solomon, but Solomon did exactly what he was told not to do. Verse one of chapter 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, all of these different nations from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Again, I, I hate sometimes the way we read this and we you know, make it sound like it's women's fault that, that these men did these things. It's much more, I think, a better way to read it is much more like reading it through the lens of the Garden of Eden. And God saying, here's, here's what you ought not to do. Here's the fruit that you ought not to eat. And Solomon does with the wives and with the, the gold and with the, the horses and with the trading and with all of these things, Solomon does exactly what he's told not to do. Of course, <laughs> when, when you read the instructions in Deuteronomy, I mean, it, it's sort of vague, right? It's sort of vague in that he shouldn't acquire many wives. He shouldn't acquire much silver and gold. He shouldn't acquire many horses. And what's the natural question we might ask uh, with an instruction like that? Uh, that's right. <laughs> See, we know, right? Where's the line? Where's the line? Of course, when you read what Solomon did, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, 1,000 wives. I, I would say that's many, don't you? I would say that's many. But again, again, isn't that, isn't that human nature for us to say, well, I mean, you know, that king over there, he's got 2,000. I got half of what he has. That's not, you know, we, we just, we, we try to get as close and as close and as close to the line as we, as we can without stepping over. And I don't know that that's what Solomon did, but, but that's, that's what we do, isn't it? As opposed to saying, who are you called to be? You are called to be different. And, and really, you know, we could look back at Scripture and we could even think about, um, we could think about monogamy. We could think about having one spouse and say, well, you know, all of these patriarchs and kings, they all had multiple spouses. But did God ever say that was a good idea? In fact, when Jesus taught on marriage, he would go all the way back to the garden. Solomon had the same story of creation that, that Jesus had. And Jesus would go back to the garden and say, this is the way it was supposed to be. God created a wife and the two are one flesh. But we're always saying, yeah, but I want more and I want more and I want more and I want more so that we abandon our contentment, and our peace, our trust for God. We say, I want to experience this for myself. Then if I could experience this, then I would have the good life. 
in all of these things, not just with Solomon, he's just a reflection of what the people did. Because instead of trusting God, they had a king. But they said, but we want to experience what it's like to have a, a real king. Because I am your real king. We, we keep saying, I want more, I want more, I want more. They, they're getting, we, now they talk about FOMO, the fear of missing out. And Israel has this collective case of the fear of missing out. They, they want what everyone else has. And Solomon, again, as a reflection of that, he also accumulates and accumulates and accumulates until his heart is what? Turned after other gods. And that's, that's the problem in all of these things. It's, it's a heart problem. From the very beginning, it's always been a heart problem. So in a sense, this is where the division begins. When we talk about the divided kingdom, it's before Rehoboam. Rehoboam is is Solomon's son, and the kingdom will officially divide then. But the division actually begins where? In Solomon's heart. And you could even say it begins in the people's heart, but, but certainly in Solomon's heart. His heart is divided. And it's interesting, throughout Israel's history, it isn't like there were long periods of time where they said, we don't want to have anything to do with Yahweh. What did they do? Right, we want Yahweh plus, right? We want Yahweh and these other gods. And God said from the very beginning, no other gods before me. Trust me, love me, be holy, totally, radically, completely, fundamentally committed to me, me. And I will protect you. I will exalt you. You will glorify me because people from every other nation will say, what is up with these people? It's amazing what's happening over here. They are not like any other people. If they had really listened to God, their king would have been a theologian. Their king would have been a Bible scholar. They wouldn't have had a big standing army. They wouldn't have had a bunch of horses and chariots. The rest of the world would have looked at them, strength through weakness. They would have looked at them and said, how is this nation so strong? Nobody can defeat them, yet they don't have any reason they should be that strong. But they threw that away because they wanted what everyone else had. And guess what? They got what everyone else got. War, famine, disease, destruction, chaos. The same things that all of the other nations experienced. Verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. Who did he say that to already in this story? Saul. Same, same idea, right? But, but remember everything we talked about two weeks ago? I know we had an ice storm in there, but do you remember what we talked about? What did God promise about David's dynasty? Forever, right? This, this is not conditional, right? This is not conditional. And now all of a sudden God says, okay, I've had it. This is just the next generation. This is the next one. And he's the wisest person that's ever lived he, he started off so well. He asked for wisdom. And now God says, okay, I'm going to tear it from you and I'm going to give it to your servant. He says, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I'll give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son. What tribe is that? Judah, right? Judah. Now there were other people from other tribes that ended up in Judah, but, but That's the one tribe. For the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Do you see how already you see the patience of God? 
and how God keeps his promises. He said, I promise. I promised David. I promised your father. And I made this promise that it's going to be through, through this Davidic line that I'm going to bring salvation. And I promised that a son of David would be on the throne. And so I'm going to keep that promise. I'm going to tear away most of the kingdom away from you. You're going to rule over one tribe. And so from this point on, you have this divided kingdom when his son Rehoboam takes the kingdom. That's about 930 BC. So all this that we're talking about is almost a thousand years before Jesus. So uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam um, splits the kingdom. We won't get into that story. But um, so if I don't know if everybody can see this map or not, but here's Jerusalem right here, right at the, the northern part of the southern kingdom of Judah. Here's Israel, the northern kingdom. Um, Samaria will be eventually the, the capital of, of the northern kingdom of Israel. So this is where, you might not know this, but this is where we get the word Jew, right? Jews or Jewish is from the tribe of Judah because the northern kingdom of Israel, again, spoiler alert, is going to be destroyed by Assyria, taken off into exile and captivity, but never really become anything ever again, just kind of scattered to the wind. Um, and then the southern kingdom of Judah is going to be taken off into Babylon um, and then come back. But that's where we get the idea of Jewish or the Jewish people from the tribe of Judah. Now, that's all God's intention and God's protection. Not Again, not because they've done well, but because God promised. I have special plans for Jerusalem. I have special plans for the tribe of Judah. Special plans for my people. And so he allows this, this split in the kingdom between uh, the northern and the, the southern kingdoms. Now, notice how close is, or Jerusalem is, which, of course, was the, the capital, continues to be the capital of Judah. Uh, but what, what else is in, in Jerusalem after Solomon built it? The temple, right? The temple is in Jerusalem. So, of course, Jeroboam, who becomes the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Now, Jeroboam's going to be afraid, right? that, okay, now that I've kind of split things up and I'm ruling over these 11 tribes up here, what's he afraid of with Jerusalem? Right, they're going to go back to Jerusalem to worship, right? That's where the, the place of worship is. So I can't let that happen. I need to build some places of worship in the northern kingdom. So 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, again, Jeroboam, the king of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Again, is Jeroboam functioning out of faith and trust and loyalty to God? No. What's he operating out of? Somebody said it. Self-interest? Yeah. And, and fear, right? Fear. He's, he's operating out of fear, just like Saul did, just like humans do, just afraid, afraid of losing power, losing control. They're going to give their allegiance back to Rehoboam because they're going to go to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 28, so the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. Man, super ironic, right? Two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, Exact same phrase. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It's exactly, exactly what they said. Where? At Mount Sinai. Exactly what they said. 
These are, these are your gods that brought you out of, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship there. These are the gods that delivered you from Egypt. So trying to appropriate the, the story of the Exodus and assign it to some other god that you don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to worship that god. These are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other one he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. Again, what, did, what does this show, the fact that the same words are said and the same actions are done that happened right after the Exodus? As soon as they got the law, this is what they did. They made a golden calf. They worshipped it. They gave credit to this man-made idol for bringing them out of Egypt. And now, now, centuries later, after all of these other things have transpired, they split the kingdom, brand new opportunity to do good things and new things. They do the exact same thing. What does it show? They forget history. Yeah, absolutely. Rebellion. Yeah. And they don't change. And really, that's, that's a theme of Scripture. People don't change. People don't change. People do the same stupid, rebellious, evil things over and over and over and over again because their heart is hard. And, and one of the themes of Scripture is you need a brand new heart and you can't do it to yourself. You can't give yourself a brand new heart, but God can give you a brand new heart. And so God patiently endures and tolerates these people who, who have Decade after decade, generation after generation continue to do the exact thing, not similar things, not, yeah, close to the same thing, but like exactly the same things over and over and over again. And yet, and yet God doesn't just send a meteor down and say, I'm done with them all. He continues to tolerate them. He continues to allow himself to be wrestled with. He puts up with them, patiently enduring them, generation after generation after generation. Okay, uh, let's see, verse 31. He also, this is Jeroboam, he also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. Right? So he set up his own worship. Okay, so the northern kingdom lasts for about a hundred years or so, which is an amazingly long time. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah lasts for a, about um, a little over 300 years. And so God continues to tolerate and put up and be patient with them. So here's something to take note of. During this time, God's rule was mediated through what I'm calling hit or miss kings in, in the southern kingdom of Judah, just awful kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, but, but sometimes you got a good king in the southern kingdom of, of Judah every now and then, hit or miss kings, often corrupt priests and prophets who were ignored, mistreated, and murdered. Except, of course, for the false prophets. God wasn't mediating his rule through the false prophets. They loved those guys. I mean, they, they ate their stuff up. I mean, they just loved what the false prophets had to say, but the actual prophets through whom God was mediating his rule, they hated them. They despised them, they rejected them, they didn't listen to them, and they murdered them. So all of this is going on 
for hundreds of years. Here's kind of a real quick table just to kind of show you how many kings there were in the northern, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and some of the prophets. So when you hear names like Elijah and Elisha and Amos and Jonah and Hosea and Obadiah and Joel and Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah and Zephaniah, all of these prophets are prophesying at this time, this divided kingdom where you have some good kings, mostly bad kings, just rampant corruption, just corruption after corruption after corruption. And God is patiently enduring them and putting up with them and, and, and holding on to them in spite of themselves because he's made promises and he will not break his promises regardless of how corrupt they have been. So what were the major sins? If you kind of had to put them in, in kind of big categories, what would you say are the major sins of Israel and Judah during this time? Major sins. Idolatry, absolutely. Number one, idolatry. What else? That's the one sometimes we tend to focus on. It's interesting to me how sometimes different people focus. You could sort of separate them. This is how I separate them. Idolatry and injustice. And that's really how you could sum up everything God told his people to do. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that's it. That's the whole law and prophets. And it's interesting how when we talk about this time period in Israel's history, some people really focus on the injustice. And they focus on how God warned and warned and punished his people because of the injustice that they inflicted upon their neighbors. And they're right. It's exactly what God did. And other people kind of leave that part out and they just focus on the idolatry. They say, well, they worshiped wrong and they worshiped the wrong gods and they didn't love God. And so God destroyed them because of their idolatry. And they're right. It's exactly what happened. But it's not one or the other, it's both. And in fact, they're, they're, they're intimately tied together. Because when you don't worship God, then you are not a, you're not adequately or rightly reflecting God. And when you don't worship the God you were created to worship, and you worship a created thing, then you become less than the human you were created to be. And you also treat other human beings in a way that is less than you were created to treat those other human beings. You treat people unjustly because you don't worship the right God. This is what Romans 1 is all about. We become corrupt in every part of our life when we don't worship God. And we will worship something. Everyone worships something. And when we worship the creation instead of the creator, we become something that is distorted, a distorted version of humanity. And we treat other people in distorted ways. And so it's both. It's both the injustice and the idolatry. It's not one or the other, it's both. And because they didn't worship God and because they didn't love their neighbor and take care of their neighbor, then God sent all of these prophets to them to prophesy against their behavior and to warn them and warn them and warn them. Before we read from Micah, and again, my two encouragements this week, read Deuteronomy if you can, especially read Micah. Read Micah. Micah is one of those shorter books that that you could really just dig into, and um, I think you would really enjoy it. And we're going to read a lot of it tonight, but um, in the the 10 minutes we have left. Um, but, But before we get there, just this word injustice. Obviously, what's the root of that? What's the good side of that? 
justice, right? See, we tend to think about justice as a punishment. But justice is so much more than that. Justice, biblical justice, you could sum it up as saying that it's setting things right. And and the other word that, that really means to do justice is righteousness. When you read righteousness in the Bible, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about being a just person, having a right relationship with God, but also having a right relationship with other people. And righteous people, just people, they take what they have and they realize they have an obligation to their neighbor to help set things right on their behalf, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of their neighbor. And when they don't, when they allow someone to mistreat their neighbor or they actively mistreat their neighbor, they are practicing injustice. Injustice is not loving your neighbor as yourself. That's not an optional thing. We tend to think of things like charity and helping others as sort of optional things. Not for God's people. For God's people, this is part of the covenant. If you're going to walk with God, then you're going to love, you're going to be obligated to love your neighbor as yourself. And because they were not loving their neighbors as themselves, they were being unjust. And because they were being unjust, God had to bring justice which is bad news for the unjust people, but it's good news for the people who are being hurt and oppressed. And there's always a remnant of people who are trying their very best in the midst of a horrible situation to do what is good, to do what is right. But those people are typically the poor people and the oppressed people and the people that are getting stomped all over. And the prophets are comforting them, saying God's justice is coming. And again, when you say God's justice is coming, that sounds like a scary thing, but it's only a scary thing for the people that are practicing injustice. For the people that are patiently waiting for God, it's the best news you could possibly hear. Best news you could possibly hear. So that's what the prophets are all about. And I'm just reading Micah as one example. Look at Micah chapter 4. Verse 1. This is part of the comforting part of the story of Micah. He he has plenty of warnings that say God's going to wipe wipe you off the map. Like Y'all are done. Like your, your homes are going to become like this idea of thorns and thistles, desolate. Like that's going to be a reality. Like again, I, we've talked about like post-apocalyptic movies. That's the way that, that most, they didn't say post-apocalyptic movies, but that's the way that they talked about that picture is the way the prophets talked about the judgment that was coming. There's going to be wild animals running around in your streets because your walls are going to be knocked down. Your buildings are going to be knocked down. It's all going to be desolate because you didn't keep covenant with me. So Micah 4 verse 1, he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Micah says, and again, Isaiah says the same thing. Uh, Jeremiah says the same thing. All these prophets eventually will say the same kinds of things. God is, where there's chaos now, because there's idolatry and injustice, God is going to establish order. 
And he's going to bring order not just for Israel and Judah, but for all the nations. And eventually all the nations are going to come into the house of the Lord and they're going to say, we want the God of Israel to teach us how to live our lives. It says verse 3, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against Nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Someday, my, my anointed one is going to come and bring this to the world. Now, especially this part, he shall judge between many nations and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. I mean, in this room right now, that's already reality, isn't it? If you and I have a dispute amongst ourselves, we're, we're not Jewish people. We don't live where these words were spoken and written. We live on the other side of the world 2,000 years later. And, and now if we have a dispute amongst ourselves, who's going to decide who's right and wrong and help us to settle it? Jesus is, right? Jesus is going to help us to decide our disputes so that we can live at peace with one another. And we're going to follow his example and not learn war anymore and live at peace. This is what... The prophets say, this is what's coming when the Messiah comes. This is what's coming, not just for Israel and Judah, but for the whole world. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Now, why Bethlehem? Who else is from Bethlehem? Jesus, yes, and, and he will be. But David, right? This is the city of David. A descendant of David, he's going to be the fulfillment of these promises. He will come forth. One who's coming forth is from old, and he will be the ruler in Israel. Therefore, he shall give, uh, give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Again, think about the time that this is written. The kings are a mess. They're fearful. They're, they're power hungry. They're only looking out for their own self-interest. The priesthoods are all corrupt. Nobody's listening to the prophets. And the prophets say, listen, someday God's justice is coming. And it's coming through a ruler, a ruler that's going to come from Bethlehem and he's going to shepherd Israel. He's going to set things right. Not just things right here, but people from all over the world will flock into the house of God saying, set things right for us too, because we can't live at peace either. We want you to rule over us. This is amazing, isn't it? That this beat up, nothing group of people living in a nowhere part of the world are being told someday the, your king is going to rule over all the nations of the world. It's the same promise that's been echoed from Abraham on. Micah chapter 6. I don't have enough time. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, Miriam, 
O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? So God says, I've got a case against you. Why won't you listen to me and do what I, I need you to do? And the people are like, oh, what does God want from us? Shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What does God want from me? What does God want from me? When will he be happy with us? He's told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Nothing's changed. This is what God has always expected of you. Take what you have, use it for the good of your neighbor, and walk humbly with your God. That's it. Stop cheating each other. Stop overlooking when other people are cheating each other. Look out for the people that can't look out for themselves. The stranger, sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Visit people that are in prison care for the sick, care for the poor, help one another. This is it. God doesn't want all your sacrifices. He's not interested in all the religious ceremonies. He just wants your heart and your obedience. Love him and trust him and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same message from the beginning to the end. Again, but he tells them, because you haven't done what you're supposed to do, your land is going to be desolate. Look at verse 13. Therefore, I strike you with the grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine, for you have not you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. You're following these horrible leaders that you've had and you walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing so you shall bear the scorn of my people. This punishment is coming, but it's always this two-sided coin. God's justice is this two-sided coin. Verse 18 of chapter seven. This is how the book of Micah ends. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the story. This is the story. This is the God who brought them out of Egypt, brought them into the promised land, and over and over and over and over and over again, they showed they cannot change. And God says, I'm going to put up with you until I change you. I'm going to take out your heart of stone. I'm going to put a heart of flesh in you. I'm going to give you my spirit, and I'm going to teach you to walk in my ways. And now through Jesus, this has become the reality. And we are supposed to be the living proof of God's justice that has come. For centuries, the prophets warned the rebellious and comforted the remnant that God's righteous justice is coming. We'll talk more as we go, but we're out of time. So that's, that's the story of the divided kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you 
for these words of the prophets that continue to echo in our ears. Father, help us to to have our hearts of stone taken from our chest and to receive from you a new heart of flesh, to receive your spirit, to walk by your spirit, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with you. Thank you, Father, for your long-suffering patience. Thank you, Father, for, for bringing your son and for the forgiveness that comes through him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.